This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. And with us in studio, Taylor Mark. Hello, Taylor. Welcome. Hello, Elaine. Hello, Blair. Hello. So glad that you could uh, join us. Now, Taylor's a certified financial planner. Uh, She's been on the show before, chartered life underwriter, and a certified health insurance specialist. Has over 15 years of experience in the financial industry. And uh, we are talking about, in this segment, we're doing a couple with her today, uh, critical illness insurance and other living benefits. Um, I... uh, I don't even know what that is. Can you? Can we start there? What is it? Critical illness insurance is essentially a a lump sum payment in the events that you are diagnosed with the qualified um, events that's in the policy. So in most cases, that would be cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, diagnosed with cancer, usually the claim is about seventy percent of the time. And then you have other things like heart uh, heart attack, stroke, uh, coma, Parkinson's, paralysis around 25 different things that can occur within that policy. And those are real debilitating illnesses. Exactly. You are not going to be able to go to work the next day after that diagnosis. Exactly. Or or, or the chances are really good that you're not going to be able to. Right. Okay. Hmm. So what's the, uh, let's let's start off with um, uh, the, I guess the number one things that people worry about r- right away. As far as having a diagnose of something like a critical illness? Yeah, and being able to then look after their finances. Right. So usually the biggest concern that comes up is what are we going to do for income? If I am not able to go to work, then how do I pay for my mortgage? How do I take care of my family, especially if you have young kids? So those are usually the first things that comes up. And then the second thing that you think about perhaps is, well, who will you know, who will take care of me? Mm-hmm. Uh, can my spouse be able to take time off to to do whatever that needs to be done as far as taking care of the home, taking care of, of going to work at the same time, making sure that I get to all the appointments that I need to? There's so many things. So many things. Yeah, there can be incredible financial pressure, just as you're speaking, Taylor. So obviously the, the person who's ill can't work, and then there's mm-hmm. obviously impacts on the family as well. Perhaps the other spouse has to take time off to support and different things like that, and, and bills still need to get paid, right? Absolutely. So, so suddenly you've got the stress of being sick, and then you couple that with the stress of, oh my God, there's all these financial obligations that our income's now been cut in half. So I can see why this might be attractive to, to someone. And now, basic question, is this taxable benefit? You know, if someone um, gets a lump some critical illness to payment, or do they have to give some of that to taxes? Nope. For once, CRA is mm. not involved in this product, so you get to keep that lump sum amount when the check is uh, given out to you. And usually for a claim to be paid out, for, as an example, if it's cancer, there's usually a 90 days waiting period. And mm. you do have to qualify in the sense that cancer comes in many th- different stages. So in the beginning stages, that would not necessarily trigger a claim. But upon, for example, a uh, diagnosis of when the cancer metastasis
metastasize, uncontrolled mm. growth inside your body. That's usually when it becomes a critical stage. And, and that's a 90 days from the time of diagnosis that you will get that check in your hand. And after that, you basically do whatever you need to do with that check. And what are ballpark amounts that people would typically contract for or qualify for? Is there a minimum, maximum? Is there a typical range? I mean, on minimum, I would say it's probably around $20,000, but I'm sure mm. you can get less if you really want to. Maximum is really based on the need analysis that you would do with your financial planner. Um, I personally try not to do any new policies that's under $100,000 just because you have to think long range. This policy will hopefully be staying with you for all of your life. If that means 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the road, you have to think of of the value of that amount. It's worth something today for 100000 as an example, but in 20 years and 30 years, it isn't as helpful anymore. So you want to get the maximum that you can based on the budget that you have. Now, I think it's worth noting, too, that it's uh, w- once, once there is an illness within the family, that's not the best time to be thinking about getting that critical health insurance. Uh, is it a, an impossible situation? I mean, does that not exist for, for me if all of a sudden there is an illness and now I need it? If I don't already have it. Exactly. Unfortunately, most people think about getting this type of coverage when there's some sort of of a scare. That becomes a wake-up call. Uh, It's not impossible. There are different markets for higher-risk situations. But, you know, when you are going to uh, look for that type of coverage at that time, usually you have a lot less options. You You will be paying more premium and and the coverage is not as comprehensive and i know i didn't prepare you for this question taylor but is is there a kind of a ballpark of cost that people could consider is this you know completely unaffordable if you get it younger is it better than getting it older i've got to think there's various different different profiles and costs but i'd love for listeners to be able to think okay this is something that perhaps i could afford versus something well this would be a luxury that there's there's no way i can insure myself for this Right. So uh, with critical illness insurance, there is a very uh, a variations of term policy as well as permanent policy. So if there's a budget issue and you have a bigger need than what your budget able to allow you for, uh, there are policy from a term perspective that could be as little as fifteen twenty dollars for for maybe fifty thousand dollars of life of critical illness insurance. On a monthly basis. On a monthly basis. So it can be very affordable and it really comes down to allowing your financial advisor to design it for you properly. Um, What are the other options? Like if if long-term disability, for example, isn't available, what do I do? What do I do? Well, for long-term disability, that is a monthly income replacement in the events that you are unable to work. Um, And that could be for... various different reasons. It could be something stress-related or it could be a physical disability as well. So with long-term disability, then if you are unable to work, then this monthly income will be a, um, a, a way to replace that income that you are you will be losing. Taylor, today we're talking about, you know, what do people miss out on the kind mm-hmm. of the, the unknown things that people might, you know, they 
wish they knew about them when it's after the fact. So critical illness is one, but disability insurance, as you were talking about. So I was thinking, if I'm an employee, I've already got that in my benefits, right? Mm-hmm. But for a self-employed individual, I think that's really interesting that a lot of people miss out on the fact that they can actually get disability insurance. So I think let's, let's talk about that a little bit. For a self-employed person, how can they, um, you know, structure and, and get disability insurance? Is it impossibility if you're self-employed? Not at all. Uh, ideally, if you have been self-employed for longer than two years, then that will allow us to to get that policy for you in a better way. Because mm-hmm. how you underwrite a, a long-term disability insurance is by the income that you made and historically in the last two years and by what you do. So that comes down to risk. So if you are, for example, a home builder versus someone that sits in front of a computer all day, different mm-hmm. risk and different costs based on that risk. And as a a self-employed person, if you know you're transitioning into your own business, it's really a good idea to first get insurance in place. Even if you have group policy in place, you can still work that out to get a policy in place so that when you are transitioned to that uh, different stage in your life as a self-employed person, you you don't need to look for that policy because it's mm. a lot harder because you don't have any background. So maybe just pausing there for a second because yeah, I think a lot of people that become self-employed is because they just you know they couldn't handle you know working for mm-hmm. somebody else for a period of time and they know they're leaving a lot with their benefits and different things and taking on more risk. But you're saying something that they should be doing before they drop those existing benefits is apply for the new policy even if they haven't been self-employed for the two years. Well, Well, yes, because when you apply for that new policy, they will be looking at you based on what you are doing today. So if your job today is whatever it is, but you've been at it for the last two, three or 10 years, that will allow your policy to be set up based on this present job. And then that can be translated to whatever you do in the future, whether you become Mm self-employed or do anything else for that matter. Okay, and then if you wait after you've left that job, you can't rely on that any longer. You've got to do the two years of, of basically establishing yourself. Exactly. So that, that's something big, right? Exactly. So, so you've got to think about that before you resign from your existing position. And, and sorry, I was just really fascinated about this, but if you're at an existing position and you think your disability is insufficient, mm-hmm. can you purchase extra on top of that? It sounds like that's yes, right? Yes. There's definitely yes. There is uh, there is a formula that we have to look at to figure out, because there's a ceiling on, on how much insurance you can get for long-term disability. So there's a ceiling, and we look at the gap. And once that's figured out, then that's what we would be applying for. And then there's also extra riders that you can add in there that allow you to uh, add in more insurance in the future in the events that, um, that you need to. Right. Okay, and then I, I know, Taylor, you also mentioned a couple extra things here we wanted to talk about, that if you can't get long-term disability, so perhaps if you're within those two years, um, or I guess there's other situations too, if you've got a bunch of pre-existing conditions, maybe it'd be a bit tough, I'm not sure, mm-hmm. but what are some other options that you could consider here, just so listeners have a good sense of what's the suite of what's available? For sure. So long-term disability is underwritten in a certain way based on your work and your and, and, and how long you work and your income level, but if that's not really the best solution, because 
because of all these different factors, then you would you may want to consider also uh, critical illness on top of it because or instead because critical illness is uh, looked at in a different way and it doesn't need to be looked at based on your income level or or what you do, but just really about the coverage that you are looking for. So critical illness is a, a great option as well. Another thing to consider is something called long term care. Long term care is also a monthly income replacement, but it's not based on whether you could work or not. It's based on whether you can live independently uh, due to the situation you're in, whether it's cognitive issues or or uh, physical disability. Excellent. Hmm. Now, what about, is there any other products that we should be aware of when you're when you're in this category and we're talking about long term? Long-term disability. Yeah, there there are uh, subsidiary products that you can consider if all else fail. Uh, they're not my favorite. I will admit to that. But you're you can look at something called accidental death and dismemberment, which is purely based on you know claim from a, um, an accident. And and then there are other coverages as well where they will uh, pay you based on how long you you stay in a hospital. Hmm. Okay, so something to think about. Mm-hmm. We've been talking with Taylor Mark. She's the founder and CEO of Engrace Financial Solutions, a firm that is about service and doing what is best for the client. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We've got Steve Fruitman on the line with us. He's one of the founding partners of Magellan Law. It's a leading firm of lawyers based in Langley. Now, Steve specializes in business law as well. His areas of practice include corporate, commercial, securities, pensions and benefits, as well as trust law. And he's got a really interesting background as well, which includes economics. So he's a really great guy to talk about what's going on today uh, for folks that are wanting to set up businesses. What's the best way of doing it? Do you incorporate? Do you not? All that kind of stuff. Uh, so for this segment, we're going to talk about um, something that we, we're thinking about that has a lot of misunderstandings around it. It's called Corporate Law 101. Uh, really want to start at the basics to help anybody listening who's considering how you should set up a business and whether or not you should incorporate, which is a really good question to ask because I know that that comes across. People have these uh, great dreams of starting something, and then it's like, oh, there's an avalanche of questions and and sort of the legal side of things. And uh, this segment's all about trying to make that as clear as possible. So thanks, Steve. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Lane. Thanks for having me. So let's start at the very basics. What is a corporation? And I want to add to that, why should we set up one if we're wanting to set to start a business? I think it's a great question. It's not always a slam dunk that you want to do that, um, but there's a number, you know, I could drill it down to two key factors in terms of whether or not you want a corporation. A corporation is a separate legal entity, and what that means is, you know, we have the ability to do business as ourselves, as you know, sole proprietors. And as such, you know, if it was uh, Steve Fruitman uh, carrying on business, there would be no distinction between my uh, my business and myself. So if I get myself into trouble in my business and someone decides they're going to sue me, 
then my personal assets, my home, my car, my uh, investments are all exposed to, um, you know, to potential business losses. Fair enough. So for that... For that reason, a lot of uh, business owners will want to go through a little bit of extra cost that's not huge, but of setting up a corporation, which is a separate legal entity, and they'll run their business through the corporation. So if they get themselves into trouble with creditors or someone is suing the business, um, their personal assets aren't exposed, just the business assets, just the investment that they've made in the company. Fair enough. So it sounds like a corporation, the primary means, you know, is to, is to limit your liability, as you said, and, and give some separation. Um, and now, Steve, for folks that are listening out there, they probably heard a bunch of terms thrown around. The two that are really important would be a shareholder and a director. Can we talk about what does it mean to be a shareholder and director? Can it be the same person? Does it have to be those types of questions? That's a great question, Blair. It can absolutely be the same person. In small, closely held businesses, it typically is. But simply put, a shareholder, you know, I refer to them as investors. They're, you know, you want to invest in, say, Apple. Um, you buy shares, and you may end up getting uh, some of the profits of Apple. Um, but you don't run the company. Um, you elect, uh, collectively, directors to run the company, to manage the company for you. So in closely uh, held businesses, you uh, own the shares of your company, and you typically vote for yourself as a director, but it's important to know which hat you're wearing because shareholders, as we mentioned earlier, are protected from liability um, by running through a, their business through a company. Directors can be exposed to some liability, um, typically for areas of failing to pay taxes, uh, corporate taxes, uh, employee remittances, GST, PST, and the such. So important to know the distinction. So we've already talked about that setting up a corporation it protects your personal uh, liability or that umbrella. So is that the number one reason why people choose to incorporate businesses? Elaine, that's a great question. From, from my world, from my perspective, absolutely. But I recognize that there's other business advisors um, that, you know, uh, contribute to the decision-making matrix, um, like accountants, for instance. And the taxation of uh, different business structures is also a factor. So sometimes you'll, you'll have uh, various accounting uh, advisors uh, say, I think, you know, until you hit a critical mass, you might not be ready for incorporation. Uh, from my world, I say it depends on the level of risk. If you were setting up a book club, then, you know, maybe I would agree. If you were running a, a skydiving school, then I would think maybe you want to think about incorporation. <laughs> yeah, fair <Right>. enough. <laughs> now, now, Steve, we talked on the show just very briefly, but about some of the federal government um, tax changes that are going to affect small business owners. What can you tell us about those? Blair, that's a, that's, a, that's a great question. For years, um, business owners were able to structure their affairs in such a way that members of the family were able to invest in the business. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, if my wife and I both thought that Apple was a good investment, we'd both buy shares of Apple and would reap the benefits of uh, the company doing well. We could also invest uh, in our business venture, our, our family's business venture, and um, Traditionally, from you know 1970 uh, on to about a year ago, we were able to structure our affairs in such a way that you know, both spouses could benefit from ownership of a family business. That's changed dramatically, and the tax rules of putting money away for business owners for retirement and uh, for um, investing in your own corporation, that's changed dramatically and, uh, and really requires a lot of legal and, uh, and tax advice at this point. So if someone's got a corporation and they're not aware of these changes, they should be phoning up their lawyer or phoning up Magellan Law and saying, hey, let's, let's explain and understand how these are going to impact me, right? 
Absolutely. And typically the people that would be uh, really interested in that conversation are people that might have holding companies, uh, maybe family trusts, uh, and, uh, and have set up the corporation to have various family members work in or invest in the company. Is it ever a good idea not to incorporate, Steve? Um, it really, you know, a lot of that depends from a legal perspective. I really like that structure, um, and I don't find it too complicated. But from tax uh, perspective, sometimes partnerships might be the better way to go. Uh, and there might be situations where running a business as a sole proprietorship is absolutely uh, is absolutely fine. So it's really it really depends on the circumstances, and and it's hard to give a, a you know a, an answer that covers off all circumstances. Sure, fair enough. I get that. Now we wanted to talk about some key resources, and you had a um, a piece that you wanted to mention about the cannabis industry, which is something that uh, Magellan Law is uh, advising and counseling folks on. Thanks, Elaine. Yeah, um, one of the key resources that I always want to talk about is you have your lawyers, accountants, bankers, and other financial advisors such as Blair. Um, it's critical that you um, value or try to value what you can get from these professionals versus a do-it-yourself approach. You know, Google is a, a great resource out there, but you can't replicate the years of training and practical experience um, of, uh, of a qualified lawyer. Uh, it may seem cheaper in the short term, but in the long term, uh, it's really not worth the, uh, the effort. And one of the examples that I wanted to give is we have a, uh, a very, um, uh, very great uh, cannabis practice right now. And one of the things that's happening in the province of BC is we're getting people applying for retail cannabis licenses. And uh, to date, there's been 229 applications made to the province only um, only a handful of those have gone through to the next stage. 63 of them have been sent back as incomplete. Mm-hmm. Um, contrast that with what Magellan has been doing. Uh, we've submitted now three of those applications. Two of them have gone to the next stage, and the third one is just getting some tweaks uh, and should be there shortly. So a high level of success uh, and often ends up uh, you know, being worth the, uh, the investment in the end. Yeah, and I would think that uh, the cannabis industry, it's, it just feels like it's such a, not fluid, but it's something that we don't, not everybody knows everything about uh, uh, compared to if you're setting up a grocery store or a little retail outlet. This is a whole other area. Absolutely, Elaine. And some of the challenges is the the regulators and the people working at uh, uh, you know for the government you know haven't gone through this yet. Exactly. So, you know, well the rules are are out. They're being developed. They're being you know refined as uh, as time goes by. And it's really uh, it, you know they're just as challenged as we are on this end. So everyone's kind of working together to make this. Uh, as smooth as possible. Yeah, and figure and figure it out. Listen, if any of this information resonates with you and you want more information from Steve, uh, Steve Fruitman is who we've been talking to. Magellan Law is the name of the company. It's uh, based in Langley, a leading law firm out there. Here's the website, MagellanLaw.ca. Nice and easy. Listen, you're, oh, you're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. We'll be back with more right after this.
Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We've been talking about, we've mentioned uh, consumer proposals a couple of times. Let's really kind of delve into that because it's such an interesting concept to me. What is a consumer proposal? Who needs something like that? Right. So who needs a consumer proposal is anybody that finds themselves way in over their head on their debts. So it could be that they've got, you know, way more debt than they're ever going to pay off. Or it's a case that the monthly payments, the minimum payments, they're able to handle them, but they just know in the long term, it's it's not going to make financial sense. They're just never going to get out of debt. Yeah. So you're feeling like you're just going down deeper and deeper yeah. into the mud. If you've got that hopeless feeling, if you're getting collection calls, if, you know, maybe your wages are starting to be seized, you know, those are all some pretty severe indicators that you probably need to do something to fix your financial situation. Which creditors, I just want to say, mm-hmm. have the ability to do that, right? To oh, go I, after your wages. Oh, a- absolutely. Yeah. Depending on who you owe, um, if it's the government, you may not get a whole lot of advance notice before suddenly 30% of your paycheck is, is going straight off to the government. If it's MasterCard, Visa, so on and so forth, you'll get a little bit of notice. But yeah, definitely creditors can hurt you where, where it hurts most, which is taking either your wages off your check or even going to your banking bank account and scooping some money out of the bank. So creditors can do things to you if you don't pay your bills on time. Okay, so I've come to you, Mm -hmm. I'm in trouble, and you suggest to me consumer proposal is where we want to go, Elaine. How, where do we start? Yeah, so the way a consumer proposal works is it's basically, it's a legal arrangement. It's an agreement between you and the people that you owe money to where right off the top, we stop all of the interest. So we say, okay, there's no reasonable way you're going to get your head above water if the target keeps moving away from you at, you know, 20% interest a year or 25% interest. So proposal right away stops all of the interest. And then the agreement is working out how much can you reasonably afford to pay back. And it's not the never, never plan. It's not 10 or 15 years of payments. It's over a period not exceeding five years. What can you reasonably afford to pay back? In most cases, it's about a third to half of the debt is reasonable. And that would mean I'm, I'm paying back my, my uh, creditors as well as I'm, I'm still able to live a life. That's the ideal, right? And we definitely see this in our clients at Sands and Associates um, in that, you know, we're all, in general terms, we're all honest people. We all want to honor the obligations that we've got. And, and to a person, people that come into my door, they're not proud of being in debt. They know it's because something has generally gone wrong. Um, so when they find them, themselves in debt, a proposal is a way of, you know, whether it's dignity or honor or whatever, it's doing the best they possibly can short of going into a bankruptcy, which in a bankruptcy, you know, you throw your your hands up and, you know, essentially you say, I can't afford to repay the debt. In a proposal, it's a proactive measure that you're taking to just make a deal for what you can afford to pay back on the debts. And that would include things like if I've I've got a car and I'm making car payments, all of a sudden my uh, dollars are being stretched so thinly. Mm -hmm. What what can, what can you do for me there? Well, so if, if it's a car, there's, you know, a couple of, of big questions. So, you know, first off, do you, do you still need the car? You know, do you need it to get to work? Is it a reasonable car and meet your needs and so on and so forth? In many cases, if the answers to both of those questions are yes, it's the right car and you do need it and it's the right price, a proposal can put you in a much better position to actually continue to make those payments. Because if we're able to eliminate all of your interest payments, and in many cases, Elaine, the reduction is so dramatic, it's remarkable to the extent that you know, people might have 
$1,500 of minimum payments, $1,500 of minimum payments to make each month. And a proposal takes that down to, you know, three or 400. So suddenly there's a lot more space in the budget so you can actually afford the car payment. So that's number one. Now, if it's the case that you're, you know, really handcuffed or you feel that way you're handcuffed to the car loan, um, a proposal can give you a chance to just restructure everything in your life. So if you've got a bunch of debt to Visa, MasterCard, taxes, and you've got this car loan that you feel like you can't get out of, you can just restructure everything under a consumer proposal and then decide, do you still need the vehicle or not? There are means to actually get yourself a a much better outcome through the proposal. Now, are you going to cut up my credit cards? Is that one of the first things you're going to do? It's not the first thing, but it's about (laughs) number three. Is that Um, right? So yeah, one of the, basically it it makes a whole lot of sense is at the end of the proposal, you've got to owe nobody anything or else what's the point? It's getting you back to a fresh start. And the government has a very hard and fast rule that if you do a consumer proposal, you have to turn in your credit cards. So, you know, yeah, some people, their hands are shaking as they're they're handing them over. You can tell it's emotional. Most of the time people are very happy saying this thing's doing no good for me anyway. It's been maxed out. It's been frozen, so on and so forth. But definitely people have some fear of how do you get by in this modern society without a credit card? Well, yeah, especially when credit card companies are uh, working like crazy to Mm -hmm. get you to have one or two or three, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. it's it's a bit nutty. I know the the situation in the United States is a little different than ours here in Canada, but the rules are a little bit uh, overwhelming. At, uh, I find. Oh yeah, and you know it's not even just the credit card companies. But if you want to rent a car, you know usually you need a credit card. If you're on a flight and you want to buy yourself a can of Coke, well, you usually need a credit card for that too. Right. Um, so ways you generally get get around it is you can get a secured credit card. So literally the day after you turn in your credit cards to the trustee, the next day if you've saved you know, $500 or so, you go put a deposit down on a secured credit card. So right off the top, you've now got the ability to use a credit card, you know, online or travel or things like that. But what's also great too, is as soon as you start with that secured credit card, you're actually rebuilding your credit. And does that also mean that it's only it's only going to be uh, worth that amount mm-hmm. of money? Though, so the five hundred or six hundred dollars. That's right. So it's you know it's self imposed. It keeps you from getting into trouble. Right. So from the credit card company's point of view, you can imagine the day after you've just made an agreement with them to pay off a third of the debt, they're not going to be willing to, to start to loan you money again. Sure. But if it's a secured credit card, they do want the customer, and again, it helps with your credit rating after the proposal is done. If you can show that you've really Really paid off that secured credit card every month. They didn't have to take your deposit. They give you the deposit back at the end of the time when you move on to an unsecured credit card if you choose to do that. Now, I'm always a little bit flippant about how things, how the rules are in the United States compared to mm-hmm. how they are in Canada. Um, and it, when it comes to credit cards, and you know, I made that comment about uh, um, the American companies always seem to be giving you more and more credit cards, mm-hmm. right? We've heard those horror stories, especially in the housing crisis. Oh, yeah. Um, Is that the case in Canada or are our rules a little bit better? They've gotten better in recent years, but there was definitely the the Wild West or the age of easy credit, whatever you want to call it. You know, there were periods of time where the clients that that came through my door, I just, I couldn't believe the amount of credit they had been extended to them. You know, well over six figures in some cases for people that had seen their tax returns, they had never made more than $20,000 in a year. Wow. And this is all publicly available stuff. If you're giving somebody a credit card, you check the credit bureau, you see see what's open. So I think for a period of time, the taps were far too free and open in Canada in terms of availability of credit. It's gotten better now. So there are certain new rules, meaning that you can no longer send an unsolicited credit card. 
you just you just can't anymore. You're not going to get those cards in the mail. Oh, interesting. Okay, because that would be really helpful for folks who have a hard enough time, right? Just trying to manage their own finances, let alone being offered eight, another eighteen thousand or twenty thousand yeah. or ten thousand or whatever. Yeah, and and the universal thing that I often hear from clients is, you know, well, the bank must be keeping watch behind the scenes. You know, the bank wouldn't have loaned me this money unless they really know that I can afford it. You know, essentially, the bank might know better than you. The bank doesn't know better than you. There's mm-hmm. nobody behind the scenes and very, very quickly, um, it's possible to get yourself into trouble. The bank's not watching behind the scenes and making sure they're not giving you too much credit. That all happens when, you know, the horse is already out of the barn. They're starting to do the collection calls because they know they've given you too much credit. Exactly. Um, what if my debts are also in someone else's name? How does that work? Well, that can definitely be incredibly awkward. Yeah, um, like, and yeah. what's what's the situation where that, or, you know, what would be the situation? Yeah, quite often I see it, uh, whether it's, you know, marital situations where one person's got a credit card and the husband or the wife gets a supplementary card. Sometimes that can make that person liable for the balance outstanding. Um, I also see it quite a bit with students where their parents have co-signed for a student line of credit. So not a government loan. You don't co-sign for those, but a bank line of credit. Yes. And what happens if the client's in in my office is I say, absolutely, we can solve your liability. I can make sure the bank doesn't bother you on this debt. We can do a consumer proposal, things like that. But the bank, you know, kudos to them. They were smart enough to have more than one pocket to dig into. I can stop them from digging in your pocket client, I can't stop them from going to the person that's co-signed the debt. Hmm, interesting. And and that would be a situation for uh, married people as well, right? If, you're, mm-hmm. if you've got everything in both of your names? Yeah, it, it can be. Um, you know, it, it always makes sense if it's a married couple for both partners to be heavily involved in any financial discussions, definitely any financial restructuring that might happen. Right. Because usually what, what would happen is, you know, both husband and wife have various debts, maybe they're joint, you would do a proposal together. You would just deal with the whole household situation. But if the husband or wife um, perhaps tries to hide something from the other person mm-hmm. and tries to do a proposal for themselves, not realizing that some of the debt is joint, well, then the other person on that account is going to get a notification. Well, since Joe has filed a consumer proposal, you marry her on the hook for 100% of the debt. Right. You can imagine the awkwardness of that conversation. Yeah. So communication, honesty within couples, all that really matters when you're well, dealing with finances. Well, it's so interesting because I'm in a situation where I've been married for a very long time, but forever until recently, we had separate accounts yep. and nobody's name was on each other's stuff at all. And, and it worked really well. <laughs> now that's not the case because mm-hmm. of course that can throw up other, uh, you know, other impediments for, um, you know, situations if something should go wrong or bad mm-hmm. or whatever. So, uh, but that's interesting. I hadn't thought about the idea that if you, if your debts were in someone else's name and the impact on them. Yeah. And, you know, in general, Elaine, I think a lot of people in a married situation, they think everything is joint when in reality, it's usually the exception is joint. So if you marry somebody and they've got a massive student loan or a massive visa or a MasterCard bill, just because you're married doesn't mean that the government or visa or MasterCard can come after the person who doesn't owe that money. So debts don't automatically become joint. It's only if you've actively signed to make them joint or, you know, you've got the debt together or supplementary cards, things like that. But marriage does not create a liability. Now, one of the things, that, and just in wrapping up too, uh, the reason why you can speak so eloquently uh, and articulately uh, about this is because Sands & Associates are licensed solvency trustees. 
Insolvency trustees. Insolvency trustees. Yeah. That's way I forgot the end. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we need to include that. Yeah, we, we make you solvent we by the make end of it. You, yes. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference between you guys and any or lots of other operations. Yeah, anybody that's not a licensed insolvency trustee, they just don't have the powers that we have. So everything I do, it's governed by law. It's guaranteed to work 100% of the time. If a proposal is accepted, that is legally binding. Nobody can opt out of it. I stop all the collection calls. I can stop all the wage garnishments. These are powers that no other professional has other than a licensed insolvency trustee. Confidential in-person consultations with Sands & Associates are always free. Simply call Sands & Associates at 1-800-661-3030 or visit the Sands & Associates website at sands-trustee.com to book your free consultation today. If you're not ready to meet in person or know someone who's resisting reaching out to a debt management professional like Sands & Associates, we still want to help. Simply send us an email with the breakdown of your debts, any assets that you have, such as a vehicle, home, or RRSPs, a basic idea as to your household's income, expenses, and general budget, plus any relevant information about your circumstances and situation. We'll review your situation anonymously during a segment and talk about what sort of solutions could be used to get you to a debt-free future. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We're going to talk about uh, seniors and seniors struggling uh, with debts well into their retirement. And it's something that you're seeing more of, more folks struggling? Yeah, every year that's a demographic in our practice that just goes up and up. So most recent research um, for us in 2017, a full 35% of people that came to see us were age 55 and older. And obviously at that type of age, you're probably contemplating retirement, if not in retirement. Our age range goes as high as often 90 years old. We have wow. people coming in, you know, really still struggling with debt. So, oh, that's heartbreaking. Yeah, and there's a lot of research that's out there. The Vanier Institute, you know, a very well-respected um, think tank, they figured out that a senior today is 19 times more likely to need the help of a trustee to file either a bankruptcy or a proposal than they were just 20 years ago. Now, is there is there a, a consensus as to why that is? There's a confluence of factors here. You know, we talk a lot about the cost of living. Um, you know, a lot of it comes down to people just not finishing their working life and being debt-free. So they've either continued to accumulate debt in retirement um, or the debt that they've had, it just it hasn't went away. They're making minimum payments, which just don't, don't draw down the value. Uh, quite often, there's a phenomenon on of really trying to help out um, both their kids and their grandkids as well. So really supporting two further generations as opposed to just one, um, especially as kids and grandkids today have a tougher time entering the workforce, saving money, earning a really good wage. Sometimes elderly parents still feel that type of a responsibility to help out even two subsequent generations. Yeah, or, or they just so want to. Yeah. So want to. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it doesn't make any sense to do that. So we've got a couple of case studies, which is great. So Mm -hmm. again, this is a perfect opportunity if if you're listening and and this sounds like, oh, this could be my situation or I know somebody in this situation. So the first one is uh, a couple. 
Yeah, so we'll, we'll call them John and, and Jane. And I discussed these. I was giving a presentation to a group of seniors last week, and there were a lot of nodding heads in the room saying, yeah, I could see you know, either my circle of friends or family, someone facing a similar situation. Uh, so John and Jane, John is 70 years old and retired, and Jane is 76 years old and retired. Um, their debts, so John owed about $18,000 when he came to see us, um, and Jane owed about $56,000. And these were all consumer debts. So you know, there were no mortgages or car loans. This was uh, mainly credit cards and a line of credit as well. Okay. Um, the assets that they had were a 2006 vehicle, um, you know, worth less than $5,000, so nothing that could ever be seized from them. They had some household furnishings and still a small RRSP. Um, they ended up filing a bankruptcy and they did not lose any of their assets in the bankruptcy. Okay. Um, the circumstances that got them to seeing us, um, again, is I think interesting here. Um, so John and Jane were living in Ontario, and in 2013, John's employment ended and ended unexpectedly due to health issues. Um, he was unable to work. Um, they decided to sell their home, and they moved to BC to be closer to family. Which makes sense, mm-hmm. which makes really good sense, get close to family. But British Columbia is an incredibly expensive place, depending on where you're going. Yeah. Uh, and depending on where you left in Ontario... Yeah, yeah, you hit the nail on the difference. head there, Elaine. Big difference. Because they sold their house, and the house took almost a year to sell. So during that time, there was no income coming in. Yeah. Um, but when they finally did sell it, they received proceeds of about $129,000, uh, which they partially used for moving costs and for setting up their new place in BC, and then um, to clear some of the debt they had to accumulate in the year when the house didn't sell. But 129000 they felt pretty good at that point. They thought they, they could manage things through. Wow. Now, the challenge is once they moved to BC and found out how expensive it was, um, their money went to just pay the minimum payments on their debts for four years since they had arrived here and to help with some living expenses. Um, they approached us when the money had ran out. So the full 129000 had all been used up and they realized they couldn't meet their minimum payments on just their pension incomes. So they're still paying into their pension at that point. Is that what you, is that oh, no. what you mean? Their pension's paying them. Their pension's paying them. Yeah. So what they were getting wasn't enough to cover their costs. Exactly. Okay. So their, right. their combined income was about $3,000 for the family of two, um, but it just wasn't enough to clear the minimum payments on their debts, which again, it was eighteen and 56000 so about you know $74,000 of total debts. They just right. weren't able to keep up, obviously, on $3,000 a month of income. That's incredibly out of whack. Yeah, right? and, and plus you have to live. You've got to live somewhere in British Columbia, even if you're living outside of the Lower Mainland. Land, uh, you still have to eat and da 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 da. I don't know. I don't need to tell you this. Oh no, it, we, we all know. Yeah, and and you know we reviewed their budget and the budgets weren't extravagant. So three thousand sure. of income that's coming in, fourteen hundred went to rent. Um, you know we yeah. wish it was lower. We all do, and this was you know out out in the valley here, but still that was reasonable for what they what they needed. Yeah, uh, you know vehicle was a couple hundred dollars a month. Uh, groceries for two five hundred and fifty dollars a month, all very reasonable. Um, eating out was about one hundred and eighty dollars a month, and we find with seniors this is something that it's they're social circle as well. This is the way mm-hmm. that they see people, see family. So sometimes it's the only way so seniors get out of the house. So sometimes we do see higher yeah. eating out costs, but 180 on 300 is not extreme. Um, you know, 75 for utilities, entertainment, grooming, and so on. So they were spending about $2,600 a month just to live. And out of $3,000 a month, they had 400 left over, which again, no money for debt. Right. So what they ended up doing is they sat down, we reviewed all of the options. They filed each a personal bankruptcy. And over the term of nine months, um, they were discharged from all of their debts. So okay. They didn't take it lightly. You know, they felt, um, you know, 
very sad that they weren't able to meet all of their obligations, but they were able to start again after nine months and focus on basically just living in the money that they have each month coming in the door. Okay, now, I, uh, pardon my ignorance on this mm-hmm. question, uh, but they both filed personal bankruptcy. Right. They couldn't do it as a couple? or no. You can't do that when you're filing bankruptcy? Very few joint bankruptcies happen because okay. if one person were to pass away or one person can't complete the bankruptcy, it becomes very complicated. So typically even couples would file two separate bankruptcies. Okay, so that's a s- standard procedure. Yeah. All right. Second one. Uh, uh, sing, is she a single woman, 69 years old? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So this was a, a case study. Margaret, again, names have been changed, but um, she was about 69 years old when she came to see us, was retired. Her debts were a lot less. She owed just under $27,000. Now also her income was less. She was earning just about $2,000 per month. Um, only assets were similar, some household furniture, a 2007 vehicle not worth a whole lot, and she retained all of her assets. Um, the circumstances that got her to us is she had been making minimum payments on credit cards and lines of credit, uh, but she found she wasn't paying down the balances at all. And that's what we find increasingly is people yeah. come to us and say, I've been doing the same payment for two or three years and I still owe the same amount of money. Exactly. And that's kind of by design. <laughs> A yeah. lot of these minimum payments do very little to actually chisel down the balance. Yeah. Um, her household expenses were quite low um, because she was living with family members who was only paying $500 a month in rent. And what we were able to work out with Margaret um, was that she could do a consumer proposal, which she was very excited to do. And now a bankruptcy would have been less expensive for her, but she really wanted to pay back the part of the debt that she could afford. So on her $27,000 of debt, we negotiated a consumer proposal for $9,000. So just one third of the debt, which is very much in the wheelhouse of what we do all the time on for proposals. For consumer proposals, yeah. And we found in her budget, she was able to make a payment of $150 a month. So she'd pay off that $9,000, no interest, all the fees are included, no one can bother her or do anything against her. And over a period of up to five years, she'd pay $150 per month. Now, the other piece that we haven't uh, talked about yet is, as in the case for uh, so many folks, the stress and anxiety that comes with being in this situation mm-hmm. and then doing a consumer proposal with you and figuring it that they can do this and they can make manage this, it must have been a huge relief for her. It it was. And one of my colleagues was was working with Margaret on the day-to-day basis, and she gave me permission to share one of Margaret's emails. Uh, This was an email from Margaret to one of my colleagues, and it said, oh my goodness, I am in tears. And this is after we had just told her a proposal has been accepted. I cannot thank you enough. What a wonderful lady you are. And my colleague, Dana, definitely is. Uh, What do I need to do next? I'm just shaking. If I was there, I would give you a big hug. Thank you so much. Okay. so We get those all the time. (laughs) Which is just so, must be so gratifying. Yeah, it, it warms my heart every day, you know, just to, to get this type of validation that what we're doing is actually making a difference in people's lives. Yeah, so as a result, no stress for uh, Margaret anymore, and she's looking after a debt that she really wanted to look after. Exactly. Which is pretty great. So how did she get into this pickle? Well, it was really a, co- a bunch of factors all coming together. There were some car repairs, there were some dental expenses, there was a deductible for a car accident, which she assured me was not her fault, but she still got slammed with the deductible. Sure. Um, there was some medicine, there was a new mattress. Um, you know, it was very much just the things of life, just little unexpected things came up. And based on her $2,000 a month income, they had to go on credit. And unfortunately, that credit debt just continued to grow over time. Yeah, because none of this, I mean, even her trip to Ontario to see family that she hadn't seen in 20 years, mm-hmm. none of this stuff is extravagant by no. any means. Your dentist, you know, get, get repairing your car, depending on where you live, that's, that's the, your only way you're going to uh, mm-hmm. get out and about.
That's such a great story. Mm-hmm. I think the most, Im- or not, I don't know the most important thing, but it's just so important when, when you hear a story like this that we know that we're not alone. That's, That's got to right. be one of the biggest um, messages for folks. That's absolutely right. And if you want more information, if this resonates with you or you know somebody who's in a bit of a situation, uh, this is the phone number. It's 1-800-661-3030. You get a free consultation with Blair and his staff to figure out what to do and what the next steps are, as well as to find an office near you. Or if you want to go to their website first, it's sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.